Recant. Denounce these writings or else be condemned as a heretic and be burned at the stake. And to this, after a day of personal deliberation, as he went back to weigh everything, this was his test. His moment either for confession or cowardice. And so he finally answered his accusers plainly and said, Unless... I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures, or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they often have erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor wise to go against conscience. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. Amen. That's Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms. And in that moment, the gospel was again confessed. It was held to, recovered and preserved for generations down to us as well through clear teachings of the Scriptures. But it took faithful men like Martin Luther and many others after him, and of course many others before, to make that good confession, even under the greatest of duress, the greatest of threats, even upon one's own very life. And while we may never have to make such a public and perhaps life-threatening stand for Christ, but who knows what the Lord has in store, we know from even reading in Matthew, and we've seen it in church history, Christ's people are not spared such moments. But even if we might not have to give a life-threatening stand for Christ, every one of us is indeed tested and tried in our faith. We are tested and tried in our allegiance to follow through on the confession we've made, we are tempted and tried under every temptation and trial that we undergo. Will we trust Him? Will we obey? Will we hold fast to Christ? Will we profess Christ? Will we obey Him even when it's hard, even when there's threats upon us, even when the lusts of our heart pull so strong? Again, these are all these hinge moments. Will you trust and walk after Christ? Will our faith hold? Over these next two weeks, we'll be studying verses 57 to 75 of Matthew chapter 26. And the theme or question that surfaces is this, when difficulties arise, and they will, our faith gets tested. It gets pressed. And so what comes out of your faith as it undergoes the test? What comes out? Is it either going to be courage or cowardice? It's going to be faithfulness or failure. How can we prepare our soul then to be faithful under such tests, to endure, to make the good confession, to not cower? And it comes as we look to our Christ. We'll look over the next two weeks as we look to these examples. We're going to find two people that undergo the test. First, we're going to walk with Jesus this morning and see how he endured the test. And the next week, we'll see a similar test that comes upon Peter and how he responds under it. And under both of these, we will find the strengthening, the ammunition, the courage that we need that we might hold fast our confession under the greatest of duress or even of the what seems like mildest of temptations. But may we hold fast to him. So the first encouragement or command that we find is this, that we would take courage in the face of Christ's faithfulness. That's what we're going to see principally this morning. We're going to look at Christ. How did he handle this great test? 
And that's where we find our courage. We find our example, we find our resolve, and we find, most encouraging, His mercy, His love, to fulfill all the will of God for us, even when it cost Him so much. And as we ended last time, looking here at Matthew 26, and Jesus had just been arrested. He had been betrayed by Judas, given over to the Jewish authorities, and now Jesus is going off to his own trial, a true test. And so notice, first off in verse 57, we're following along with Jesus. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Now, that's a tip-off. As you see Caiaphas' name and then this reference to the scribes and elders, we encountered them earlier on in this chapter, actually the very beginning. If you just dart your eyes back or turn the page to Matthew 26, verses 3 and 4, we read this. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest. So this is them, right? And who was he in the name of Caiaphas? But what were they gathering to do? Verse 4. And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth stealth and kill him. So as Jesus has now been seized by this group, you can be sure as he's now coming to that courtyard himself, he was not going to anticipate a warm reception, was he? These men wanted him dead. They've been plotting this whole time to do this. And now he's finally in their grasps. Caiaphas, who's the lead minister in Israel, along with these Jewish leaders, they've united to capture, and they have done so, that they might execute Jesus. So here it comes. This is the test before Christ. Will he hold fast? Will he prove faithful? Will he walk according to the will of God? But he's not the only one in this section of Scripture, all the way to verse 75, who's going to undergo a test of character, a test of resolve. And so we pick up back up with Peter, you know, that bold promising rather to die than deny the sword-swinging apostle Peter in the next verse, actually, in verse 58. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now, you'll notice we see him in verse 58, but we don't encounter him again for another 10 verses or so down to verse 69. And what's in between is the very trial of Christ. But then what follows in verse 69 is the testing of Peter. What's happening then in verses 57 and 58? Matthew is framing this for us. He's putting the two main characters before us, Jesus and Peter. They're both going to go through the fires of temptation. They're both going to be tested. And so the question is, how are they going to respond? Jesus is going to be accused of doing wrongs he never did or said. How's he going to reply? Peter, likewise, is going to be accused of things. How is he going to respond to the pressure? Well, these opening verses of our text of study are framing that for us. How will each respond? Will they make the good confession? Will each one be found faithful? Now, this morning, we're going to look just at number one there. Take courage in the face of Christ's faithfulness, ending at verse 68. And then, Lord willing, next Sunday... We'll pick up back with Peter, where we can find hope even in the face of our own failures, let alone Peter's that we'll see happen repeatedly in that text. But for now, looking to Jesus, let's consider these three faithful acts that Jesus went through under pressure. See his faithfulness through the test, through the hardship, because that's going to spur us on to likewise make a good confession. In the first place, we have an example to follow. 
He's set for us the trajectory. He's shown for us how to walk. He's shown for us what faith looks like. But furthermore, what you also see and where we draw our courage, our strength, is to know he underwent all of this for us, to redeem us. And as he does that for us, how can we turn from him? Really, where else can we go? You can go to no greater master than him. And let's see the first faithful act as this. See that for you, he remains silent. Verses 57 through 63, first part. Indeed, in this first act of Christ, we see his faithful love. He remains silent. He makes no defense against such slanders and injustices thrown at him. But why? Why doesn't he say anything? He's not trying to get out of this. That's why. He knows that this is the will of God. This is the cup he has to drink. This is the way of salvation. And so first, as he frames it for us in verses 57 and 58, here you got Jesus, here you got Peter. Now we look at Jesus' test, the literal trial he's to undergo. And again, he's before this group, Caiaphas and the Jewish leaders. These are not impartial, right? We've seen they're coming with an agenda, an agenda of injustice. This really is a mock trial, a mockery of justice. And that's evident as we look at verse 59, because as they're coming to make a judgment in a court, their minds are already made up as to what the answer is. Verse 59, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. They already knew the verdict, guilty. And they already knew what the punishment should be, capital. This was not going to be a fair trial. They were just trying to cobble together some evidence to get us to where they know was the right answer. And of course, that's the great irony of this whole thing. And Matthew underscores it with that statement when it says, they were seeking false testimony against Jesus. They couldn't try and find actual witnesses because otherwise they know they'd have no case. Jesus would never be found guilty. Yet what they did in this trial is they hope to cover over their murderous intentions, cover it over with lies, this propped-up justice of the courtroom. Their minds were made up, and likely in their great delusion, they were so convinced that they were already right, that Jesus was already wrong, perhaps from the very beginning, right? What did they say about Jesus? Oh, he does great powers, sure, but it's because he's casting out demons by the prince of demons. They were so convinced in their own mind, they didn't need real evidence. They didn't need true testimony to get to the right outcome, his execution. And how dare they, right? How dare they throw so obviously justice aside and then try this fake, pious rationale and reason of this court to justify their evils. And yet we do the same thing with Jesus, don't we? Making excuses for our unbelief and our pursuit of sin. We don't like the things God has told us. We don't like what he said to us in his word or what we hear preached or taught. We don't like the conviction we feel. And so we just instead dismiss it out of hand. The Bible can't be true. That can't be right. We generate these technicalities. Read their excuses. Technicalities of Bible interpretation or philosophy or metaphysics. We create all these reasons and justifications in our mind about why we can ignore the clear word of God. We harden our hearts is what we do. 
Oh, there's so many interpretations of the Bible. Oh, there's so many manuscripts to be considered. Oh, this guy says that. That one says this. It cannot be clear. Maybe some manuscript somewhere says something else. Put all that aside for a moment. Consider creation. Consider biology. Consider what science says. These things are unclear. And the excuses go on and on and on so we can go on and on in our sin. We don't want the truth. We want our sins. And yet, in our self-deceived and self-righteous mind, so often we don't go headlong into our sin without trying to cover it over with pious excuses. We harden our hearts to the truth, create excuses so we no longer have to listen to it. We're not too different, are we, than Caiaphas and the Jewish leaders. And yet, in this case as they're bringing the innocent one to trial. Despite whatever their intentions were, they're having a hard time getting these false witnesses to try and agree. Verse 60. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. And this should be a clue, shouldn't it? Guys, why can't you find any false witnesses against Jesus? Because he's not guilty. (laughs) He's innocent. He's the one innocent one. He's the one who can say, if you've heard sin from me, let me know now. No man can stand to that. It should be evident, guys, you're the ones in the wrong. Now, interesting, what does it mean here that they found no witnesses to testify against Jesus? It says they found none, though many witnesses came forward. What does this mean? Mark's gospel clarifies it for us. He puts the matter like this. This is Mark 14, verse 56. For many bore false witness against Jesus, but their testimony did not agree. So here is the problem. Many people came forward saying horrible, slanderous, bad things about Jesus. Problem was that none of their slanders agreed with one another. None of their accusations matched up. And this was a huge problem for these Jewish leaders on at least two counts. In the first place, God's law stipulates that someone cannot be convicted and condemned on the testimony of just one witness. It was a protection in God's wise law. You need at least two witnesses to be in agreement. This wisdom comes from Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, which reads, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Not a single witness. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so without any agreement then between these witnesses, no conviction can happen. And you can imagine for the Jewish leaders, the one having this mock trial, their whole plan, their whole plot is just beginning to unravel as star witness after star witness comes forward and just bungles their testimony. Here's the other problem. The further, the longer this all goes on, All of these witnesses, and they all don't agree, more and more evidence actually mounts of, number one, again, they are the ones in the wrong calling this man in trial, and then number two, that they are the ones that should be punished. Four, consider the very next verses in Deuteronomy 19, the the reference I gave you that talked about having two or more witnesses. It gives also their warning about a false witness. Here's what it says, Deuteronomy 19, verse 18 If the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. So shall you purge the evil from your midst. 
They're calling Jesus. He should die. And they're bringing false witnesses to do it. When all the while, as the testimonies don't agree and that he's actually innocent, all the while with every false witness, the noose is just tightening around their own necks. But finally, two witnesses do come forward who actually agree. Their accusations match. Continuing on verse 60 here in Matthew 26. At last, two came forward, verse 61, and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, they're called false witnesses, but it's interesting. Their testimony is not too far off. Jesus said something very much like this when he first cleansed the temple. Understand, as we compare the four Gospels, Jesus cleansed the temple twice. He did once at the beginning of his ministry. That's only recorded in John's Gospel. And then he did it again toward the end of his ministry, at the beginning of this Passion Week, his last week of ministry on earth. That's what Matthew, Mark, and Luke record. But that first time that he cleansed the temple, made the whip, drove out the money changers and the animals and so forth, The first time he did that, in response, the Jewish leaders came up to him and demanded a sign. They demanded a proof. They demanded, Jesus, how dare you do this? Who's given you such authority? What sign? How can you prove that this is the right authority you have to make such a bold move in the temple? Here's your sign, Jesus says. This is John 2, verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Aha, so this is what the testimony sounds like, though very slightly different. But they got Jesus' words mostly right. The only trouble is, the one great difference is that those witnesses, though they got the words and only mostly right, nevertheless, they entirely misunderstood what Jesus meant. They assumed that comment was plotting a rebellion, a revolution. Destroy the temple, destroy the center of the worship of God, overthrow this temple building and all of our worship. Only, of course, he wasn't talking about the building, was he? John's gospel fills this in. What did Jesus mean? This is John 2, verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body, for he was God in flesh, that tabernacled, templed among us. When God came down, he took on human flesh, and the presence of God was there in that temple more clearly than it had ever been before on earth. He was the true temple of God, the true dwelling place of God on earth. And that's something that they did not at all see or understand. But he had said if they would destroy that temple as they were so intent to do, he assured them, well, that temple after three days will rise again. And so conquer death, reconciling people to the presence of God. But again, that's something they had no understanding of. They didn't get the quote right, quite right in the first place. They accused Jesus of saying, I am able to destroy the temple. It's not what he said. He said, when you do that, when you kill me, I will rebuild the true temple of God. But furthermore, and more fundamentally, they entirely misunderstood Jesus' comment. And even in the face of all of that, they've misinterpreted him, they've misunderstood him, they've misquoted him. Jesus says nothing. Even as they provide the opportunity for feedback about this, verse 62. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? 
That's damning testimony, Jesus. What are you going to say now? And again, it was so horrible because this was seen as treason to try and destroy the temple. This was war with God. This was war with God's people. But again, the great irony of all of this, it wasn't treason at all. They were the ones who committed treason against God. And they were looking to destroy the actual temple. And actually, every step that he's making, including his silence now, is the only way to rebuild the temple. To restore the presence of God among his people. Nevertheless, in the face of all of their false accusations, in the face of all of their misunderstandings, Jesus says nothing. Verse 63, but Jesus remained silent. What are you doing, Jesus? Don't you get what this is about? They're out to kill you. They are going to try and kill you. Not to mention, this is the greatest miscarriage of justice, the greatest hypocrisy. This whole trial is a mockery. Tell him, Jesus, go and tell him you're not guilty, that this is wrong, that you've been misunderstood, that stop all of this. And yet he remains silent. Why? At least on two fronts. First, his silence before all of these wrong, false accusations and slanderous words, his silence demonstrates his trust in his father, his reliance upon God alone. He doesn't have to justify himself. He knows the Lord will settle matters in the end. But second, there's something far more crucial happening here than that. And an Old Testament text explains the why of Jesus' silence here. And so we return once more again to Isaiah 53, that great prophecy about the suffering servant. And we hear this in Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Why didn't he reply? Why didn't he cry out? Why didn't he defend himself? Why didn't he defend his glory, his name, his reputation, his honor, his character? You know why. Because he was being led to the slaughter as the Lamb of God to take away your sins. That's why. Understand, as he's under the judgment eye of the court at that point, our sins were resting on him. There was no retort. There was no defense to offer. He was now guilty because he was bearing your guilt. And he was going off to be punished and to take the punishment for your sins if you trust him. That's why he had no answer. Just as you have no defense before the judgment seat of God as he's taking your sins, he has no defense for them. There's no excuse to offer anymore. Furthermore, you understand, if he had stood up for himself, if he had defended himself before them, if he had somehow gotten out and escaped this punishment, got out free... That means our sins get paid by us. We would all be damned. We would all be lost if he defended himself. But he came to save, which means he came to bear our sins. He came to bear our guilt. And that means he came to keep silent. What faithfulness of our Savior. What trust. Shall we not be faithful to him? Second, look at his faithfulness as he 
for you makes the good confession. As for you, he makes the good confession. Verses 63 to 64. His faithfulness goes beyond mere silence. And it moves here to active, bold confession of the truth, even as it costs him. He will faithfully make the good confession. So back to the trial and the situation that Caiaphas is dealing with. He's trying to get Jesus convicted, and he's running into all kinds of problems. Jesus' silence to the accusations doesn't serve at all. He can hardly take this guy over to Pilate in the morning and have justification to demand his execution. Again, remember, the Jews had no rights under Roman occupation to kill anybody. They needed the Romans to do that for them. So you would have to bring somebody who would be convicted even under the Roman eye and Roman law. But the trials that's going so so far with Jesus, none of the accusations are sticking as they are. Furthermore, none of them are rightly understood. And pile on that, Jesus won't even say anything. They're getting nowhere is the point. So from here, Caiaphas stops beating around the bush, and he just comes out and says it. Verse 63 now, middle of the verse. As Jesus remains silent, then and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. I adjure you by my authority. I make you swear before God under oath to answer this question. As God is your judge, you must answer this. Tell us the truth. Oh, the audacity of this. To say that to Jesus. God in the flesh. Who are you to talk to me like this? To that, he says nothing. But as he calls him to answer, Caiaphas does pose the simple question. Are you or are you not the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God? Now, remember, in Matthew's gospel, we've heard that kind of phraseology before, haven't we? Do you remember? Do you remember when? You are the Christ, the Son of God. Of course, it was the high point in the gospel when Jesus was off with his disciples and he posed the question to those that he had taught, those that he had discipled, those that had seen the miracles. He poses the question to his closest disciples and asks, but who do you say that I am? And of course, bold Peter, he is the one who speaks up. He gets it right. And he said this, this is Matthew 16, verse 16. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And of course, at that moment, Jesus affirmed the response. He said, yes, blessed are you, Simon of Arjona, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Your realization that this is the truth about me comes by the very revelation of God to your heart. That's truly who I am. I am the Messiah. But now that very and intentionally the way Matthew crafts this for us, the phraseology gets reprised now in the Words of the high priest in this accusation. Are you the Christ, the son of the living God? And all of his enemies are poised just to have him dare to say yes. And you understand all he would have to do to get out of this is to say no. There's been a really big misunderstanding, guys. I'm not the Messiah. And I think he could even say that mildly, genuinely, and that is he'll show He's not the Messiah they're talking about. He's a Messiah of a whole other sort. But then he could get out of this. It's not me. It's been a big misunderstanding, guys. And then he could just walk away. And indeed, you know then, he wouldn't be the Messiah, would he? 
he would have saved no one except maybe himself. But to this pointed question, are you the Christ, the Son of God? Jesus doesn't flinch. It's as if in frustration in this moment, right? Caiaphas bellows, I want the truth. And Jesus goes, yes, but you can't handle the truth. Are you the Son of God, the Messiah? Here's Jesus' reply, verse 64. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you. From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus' answer has two components to it. First of all, he answers the question plainly. Are you the Messiah? You have said so. Yes, yes, I am. You've said it yourself. But the second part, he immediately has to clarify. Are you the Messiah? Yes, sir. But I tell you, I'm not the Messiah you were expecting. I'm not the Messiah that you were looking for. I'm God's Messiah, the one foretold in the scriptures, the Messiah who would suffer and then have glory afterward. I'm not the Messiah or the genie of your desires and imaginations, Caiaphas. And to prove that point, Jesus leans on what seems to be a couple of his favorite, as we call, Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. To explain once again for Caiaphas and for the nation who he really is and what his mission really is about. So look back at his declaration, verse 64. You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man. He comes back to that title again and again, which is taken from Daniel chapter 7. We've looked at it before, because he uses that reference all the time to himself in this mission, that he is the Son of Man. And in Daniel 7, the Son of Man is the one who comes near the Ancient of Days, God the Father. To then be granted from him rulership over all creation, over all the world, and so to establish an everlasting kingdom. Listen again to Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel reports, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Oh, I'm the Messiah, all right, but I'm no little M anointed one Messiah. I'm the Messiah, the promised son of David, the promised son of man, who will reign over all, even you, Caiaphas. You may try and judge me here, you might try and put me on trial, but I am the ultimate and final judge. And I'm going to come back on the clouds, and I'm going to make this right. I will judge you in the end. No one will oppose me and win. As that other Old Testament allusion proves, back to Matthew 26, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Coming on the clouds of heaven alludes, of course, to Daniel 7. But he mentions the Son of Power seated at the right hand of power. The Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. And that's an allusion to, you might say, his other favorite verse, to Psalm 110. We saw this in Matthew 22. Remember, Jesus was being queried and challenged by all of these Jewish leaders. They kept coming up with their questions to try and confound Jesus, to shame him before the people. And Jesus answered them deftly every time. But then he posed to them a question. And he went to Psalm 110. You remember? Psalm 110 opens like this. It's a psalm of David. 
And it reads, The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. See, it was the son of David who would be anticipated to be the Messiah, the king. And yet David, the king, his father, says, I will submit to that king. That makes no sense in the Jewish world. How is it, gentlemen, Jesus brought to them, that David called his son Lord? How does that happen? Because he is the Lord who is going to sit at God's right hand to reign in heaven. For he is not merely the son of man, but he is the very son of God. He is God to reign from God's right hand. And so then to do so as he awaits all of his enemies being brought to his feet. Till he then returns to establish his kingdom on earth and that forever. It's marvelous as he references Psalm 110 and as he references Daniel 7. Jesus, in this single reply that he is the Messiah, ties together, identifies this whole connection of the gospel story, really. The whole good news in this one reference. Yes, indeed, I am the Messiah, fellas, but I'm not the Messiah you think. I'm the Messiah foretold by the Scriptures. And so then, even as you oppose me, even as you abuse me, even as you convict me, even as you kill me, I'm still the son of man who will be raised up, implication from the dead, to sit at the right hand of God in heaven. And then I'm coming back. And I'm coming back to subjugate all the enemies of God and rule and bring justice to all the earth and to do it even against you. You've said it. But I am truly the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, and far more than you've begun to realize. I will win. Judgment's coming for you. He made the good confession. He didn't back down in the least. Because he trusted in the Word of God, in the promises of God. Evidence as he leans on these two references in particular. And in this way, he's provided for us the example or model. He's our trailblazer of what it means to walk according to the will and word of God, to make the good confession even under great threats. Hence, Paul, as he exhorts the Apostle Paul, as he exhorts his ministerial protege, Timothy, he leans on Jesus' own example here, and this with his trial with Pilate. He exhorts him like this. This is 1 Timothy 6, verse 12. He urges Timothy to fight the good fight of faith, Take hold of the eternal life to which you've called and about which you've made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Timothy, you say you trust Christ. You say you profess faith in Him. Hold fast. Don't waver. You know eternal life rests with this confession. Follow through in your confession, even through hardship, even under the threat of death, because, and this is his next point, this is exactly what Christ did for us. He tells Timothy, fight the good fight, take hold of the confession, do not waver. And then he says this, this is 1 Timothy 6, 13 and 14. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. That's what Jesus did. So you keep the commandment unstained, free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord, just as he promised. He made the good confession And the call is, may we do likewise and make it in faith in the word and testimony of Christ. So, where are you most tempted to compromise your confession? Are you quiet when you should speak up for Christ? Has some sin still so entertained you that it's stained the genuineness of your confession? 
your usefulness to even be a witness. He made the good confession for us, even under the threat of death, to save us, to forgive us. And so now the call is follow likewise and make the confession for him. And do not waver. His word is still faithful. Keep your life unstained with obedience. Third, see Christ's faithfulness. Back to Matthew 26. As he receives their unjust condemnation. Verses 65 to 68. So back to the text. We see Caiaphas. And you see him express the the deepest, most pious sorrow. Verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, but don't be fooled, right? In what Jesus said, this is exactly what Caiaphas wanted to hear. As he notes, again, verse 65. He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. Now, how is this blasphemy in the technical sense? Well, that's not really clear, actually. And honestly, that underscores the whole injustice of this kangaroo court. It doesn't have to be clear for them to condemn him. Anything that seems maybe remotely possible that can be misquoted or misconstrued will suffice to have him executed. And that mild plausibility, at least in their minds, could be found at least perhaps on two fronts. First of all, perhaps they reasoned out somewhat correctly that to sit at God's right hand and then to reign forever will have to be a claim to be divine yourself. Was that the blasphemy? Possibly. And again, they wouldn't be wrong. He could only reign forever if he was God at God's right hand. But it wouldn't be blasphemy because Jesus, of course, would be speaking the truth. Or more likely, the answer is they had already concluded in their own minds that there was no possibility whatsoever that this man was the Messiah, the Christ. Of course, they made that conclusion a long, long time ago, right? You remember that even as Jesus early on was doing miracles, they said, oh, yeah, those are miracles, but they're miracles done by the prince of the demons. They had hardened their hearts to the truth. That was a foregone conclusion. Such that now for him to claim to be the Messiah in their own minds, that can only be seen as a great deception. He only proved in their minds that he's a false prophet, a great deceiver, and such should be put to death as Deuteronomy 13 demands. But Caiaphas also knows this. From listening to Jesus' confession, Jesus has made a claim to be king. The king, the king over all the nations. Jesus then, Caiaphas understands, has pit himself against Rome. And with Jesus' claim to be the eternal king, finally, maybe it's something he can bring to Pilate. Perhaps Rome will take an interest in eliminating him. Because understand, Lord Caesar does not fancy any challengers. Caiaphas can bring forward an insurrectionist, a rebel. They have their case. They have all the evidence they need. And again, the great irony is they were looking for all these false witnesses and they only needed one true one and it was one they brought into the court himself for he did not back down from the truth. Well, the evidence is in. Now it's time for the verdict. Verse 66. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. And from there, the punishment, the mocking begins. Verse 67. Then they spit in his face 
and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? They're not scared of him. They treat him like a liar, a fake, a fraud. They assume he has no powers. They think he's lost. There's no harm he can bring them. Tell us who hit you, O great prophet. And this is where my mind goes to strange fantasies here. Trying to imagine, what if Jesus said something back? The next one who strikes him, punches him in the face. He then looks up and says, Malchus, why'd you do that? And you, Simeon, you hit me first. Why did you do that? Jude, Zechariah, Melchizedek. What wrong have I done to you? Why are you men hitting me? Just to prove he knows exactly who's hitting him. He's in total control. He's in absolute control of all that's going on. I am the Christ after all. You won't get away with this. I guess if I was Jesus, that's what I would be doing. You're very thankful that I'm not Jesus. Because, of course, this is not at all what happened, is it? He remains silent literally taking it on the chin, in the face, on the cheek, receiving all the abuse and scorn with no reply, no objection, no outcry. And as we discussed, he could not object because he was taking all of that for you. He was wounded for our transgressions because he knew this was the Father's will and he trusted the Father. And that's the secret, so to speak, how we too can follow after our Christ and remain faithful through any test, trial, temptation, persecution, or opposition. It's you need to remember whose will, whose judgment really matters. Who do I trust? Who am I trying to please? Who am I walking after? Who am I trying to defend? Who am I living for? And again, Jesus' example here instructs us. It gives us the template to follow such that Peter himself in his letter references this. You can can look at this. Look look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. As Peter then gives us the reminder about Jesus as the example to follow. So 1 Peter 2 verse 21 says, For this you've been called, and that's in the context, suffering unjustly. For this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you example that you might follow in his steps. He suffered for us, but that means unjustly, and now we follow after him. And what does that mean or look like? It means when we're unjustly treated for Christ's name and trust of God, we don't retaliate. Look at verse 22 and 23. He's suffering justly, yet he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Then you have to ask, but how can you do that? Again, it's one thing to be deprived of something good you thought you deserved, and then just to keep contentedly quiet. It's another thing to keep endure wrong and suffering, hardship and abuse, and then to keep silent and not threaten, at least to try and protect yourself. How is this possible that he is now quiet in this? Well, Peter gives us insight to what fueled Jesus' faithfulness here. Look at now the end of verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one 
who judges justly. In the end, he trusted his father. He knew that his father one day would right all of the wrongs. And it's a sign of our own trust, our own reliance upon him. Just like our Savior, to not retaliate, but to wait upon the Lord to fix it and make it right. Another way to say it is that we're trusting God that he can make good, even come out of this in the end. And our call is to endure, just like our Christ did for us. Because we know, and this is the next verse in 1 Peter, that endurance resulted in the greatest good we can imagine. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. But of course, if he retaliated, if he spoke up, if he got out of it, none of that good would have happened. We would all be lost in our sins. But he trusted the will of God. And so, yes, that meant he endured abuse. Yes, that meant he took on shame. He took on evil. But yes, that meant he saved our souls and brought us near to God. All by that glorious cross that he showed in being faithful to the Lord and faithful to us. So now his call is, may we be faithful unto him. And we're going to do that even as we come to this table. So I'm going to ask the men to go ahead and come forward who have been designated to distribute the elements. And if that's your confession, and it's a public confession, that other people know that about you, that you love Christ, that he is your only hope for salvation, that he is the one who died for your sins and rose from the dead, and you want to live like him, even if that means you have to endure hardship, then join us in celebrating this table as we enjoy the faithfulness of our Christ. But if you've not yet believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and made that public, do not partake of these elements, as by the warnings of 1 Corinthians 11, you may be drinking judgment unto yourself. As the men go ahead and hand out the elements, may we meditate and rejoice in our faithful Savior.